0: We here at Grace Life would love to help you discover Jesus' unconditional love and grace for you. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you and further establish you in the truth of God's word. What we've been basically about the last two weeks has been about Matthew 5, I think it is, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, He says, You search the scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are the very things who speak about me. So even the scriptures, when he refers to the scriptures, it's Genesis 2, Malachi, because Timothy is not written yet. Uh, the book of gospel is not written, Matthew is making notes as he goes, etc. So when we speak about scripture, when we read the word scripture in the Bible, we must think Moses and the prophets and what we now call the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to show you this morning how that actually, um, can I say, steals from us? And I'm going to show you how it is stolen from me, and uh, I'm going to repent, amen? If you heard the pastor repent before, I'm going to repent this morning. and. Uh, Hold on to your horses, we're going to get there. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. What Paul is saying is, if people think about me, what must they think about? What must come to mind? They must, it must come to mind that I serve Christ and that I steward the mysteries of God. Now, we make stewardship about many other things, but the most important stewardship that you can apply in your life is what do you do with the revelations of the mystery that God has given you? What do you do with that? That is stewardship, okay? That is true stewardship. And what is the mystery? The mystery according to Colossians 1.27 says, It is Christ who now lives in you, who has been hidden for ages and generations, but now has been made manifest to us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I hope there is not something that is coming. It is a positive expectation of what is. It's going to manifest, and that's what we do in this church. So, who is the leaders? I was thinking about when Jerusalem made these announcements. If you want to be a leader in the church, you want to be a servant of Christ, and you need to steward the mysteries well. That makes you a leader. And uh, the better you steward it, the more you serve. Now, you need to be careful when I say the more you serve, because you said, Peter, this is a it is a lack of style. It's not a, a common hear everything you did wrong. No, serving Christ brings life. Serving Christ is not burdensome. Serving Christ is not, ooh, you know, you know, you it, it's not what you do, it's more a heart of worship. And I spoke to Herman before the service, to him and my Lisa, and um, when we hear the word fear of the Lord, we don't know really what to do with it. As grace people, we don't really know, like, because he's your dad, so why should you be fearful of him? The word there is all. Now the Cape, the Capes would say away. No? <laughs> <laughs> You'll never forget that. But they had it wrong, because what we speak about when we use the word awesome is what comes from the old word awe, which is the fear of the Lord. So I heard a, a, someone say this the other day. It says, ice cream cannot be awesome unless it's your idol. It can be good. It can be nice. It can be delicious. But it cannot be awesome, because only God is awesome. If we worship God, we are in awe of Him, we think He's awesome. Now, I know we use the word loosely, and don't worry, God's not going to fall off His throne. It's more about the heart than the words we use. But just to put it into context, we use these words, and just think about it. What did you learn in church today? Well, fearing God meaning means to think He's awesome. Okay, we can go home now. Thank you. <laughs> hopefully you came for more than that but uh, that's good enough amen. That, uh, what does they that say that's more than the price of the ticket so let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God now it's not like Jesus is power hungry and he just wants everyone to serve him the word says clearly that he didn't come to be served he came to serve he came to serve us he came to wash feet didn't get his feet washed 2 Corinthians 3 then And this is where I'm going to repent to you this morning. So repent means what? Change your mind. I've seen something new and I'm presenting it to you. And I might have even quoted this wrong with that, okay? So it says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness, the King James says, plainness of speech. We use great plainness, great boldness of speech, and not as Moses Which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of which was abolished. But their minds were blinded. Say, minds were blinded. Minds were blinded. Okay, that's a key for us in this part. It says, for until this day remaineth or remains the same veil, untaken away, in the reading of what? The Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Okay, so we've, we've used this a, quite a number of times. And verse 15 then goes on and it says, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is on their eyes. So one way that we could misunderstand this, and one way that I probably did misunderstand it is, do not read Moses. I mean, you can get there. You can get there easily. Hold your stones, but you're probably there with me. When Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. A veil remains. But we're speaking about in context of what? The mind. The mindset. Their minds were blinded. And what we said is, we look to Moses, and Moses doesn't want to marry you, so the veil remains over your eyes. And then we look to Jesus, and the veil is taken away. He embraces us, and we get married to Him. That doesn't change. That's still right. Okay, But if we can go back, please, to... um, Verse 14. So 15, 14. It says the veil reigns, remains unlifted in what? The reading of the Old Testament. So he says if we read the Old Testament, let's say if we try to live according to the Old Testament, then if we go to Moses, the veil remains. So what he says here is Moses and the Old Testament is not the same thing. Okay, and usually you know I build up nicely and we land with a bang and we go out excited, but I need to start with a bang this morning and then I'm going to show you something, how this applies. So what is the Old Testament? Like our friend Pastor Isaac said, the Old Testament is not what the, 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 the blank page in your Bible divides it as. The Old Testament, what Paul is writing about, is speaking about the conditional covenant of the law. So when we read Moses and the prophets, we go to what we call the Old Testament, and we're going to probably have to change our our glossary a bit, update that. But when we go read Moses, what are we talking about? We're going to read Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is Moses. So he says, when you're stuck in the Old Testament which is the covenant, the contract of law, which Deuteronomy clearly explains to us. says, if you do this, then God will do that. And if you don't do this, then God's going to do this. So if you're stuck in an Old Testament mindset, if you're trying to live according to performance, then when you go read the books of Moses, you won't see what it's actually about. Okay, that's my repentant part done. <laughs> And I don't know about you, now we go into what we call unfolding and we're revealing Christ in Moses and the prophets. And if you were here the last two weeks, then you know that we speak about Christ. So it doesn't mean stay away from the the Old Testament writings. It means be aware of how you relate to God. Because if you're going to come to God based on what you can do for God, what you should be doing for God, in order to move God, in order to receive from God, then when you're going to read Moses, the Torah, you'll have a veil over your face and you won't see what it's all about. Okay. So, we're doing a, let's, let's call it an experiment this morning. So, if you do an experiment, we live in a, a student town, there's a lot of experiments being done. So, you put forth a hypothesis, Who knows that? Okay? You put forth a hypothesis and then you go to prove or disprove the hypothesis. So I'm putting, I I just put forth a hypothesis. Okay? I said, if we're stuck in Old Testament living, we're not talking about Genesis 2 Malachi. We're talking about a conditional, the word testament there is like contract. Now, if I read Genesis 1, there is a contract, but it's not the old contract that the Bible refers to, it's not conditional. Because God just says, go and enjoy yourselves. When there's another contract or covenant with with Noah, there's no condition. Do you know there's six, probably seven covenants in the Bible? We think there's two. No, there's more. God says to Noah, after the flood, he says what? The rainbow. I don't think I'm going to get there, but let's go for it. The rainbow is a sign of a promise. Which is what? A covenant. So a covenant is a promise. The Old Testament is a conditional promise. That's the only conditional promise in the Bible. All the other covenants, all the other promises, God is not expecting anything of us. God says to Noah, I'll never flood the earth again. And Noah stands there with his notebook like you guys. And he says, what should I do, Lord? And God says, well... No, it's not on you, it's my promise. I'll never flood the earth again. And as a sign, the angel said amen. No, it's the air con. Don't worry. As a sign, what am I going to do? I'm going to give you a rainbow. The crucial word for rainbow is, what, what is it? It's a bow that appears when it rains. Okay? That rainbow. Now, there is the word bow, and the bow of the Lord is used in the Old Testament, and the bow is what we call a bow and arrow. Okay? So the bow has a curve. That's why it's a bow. Remember we said we use simplicity, no? So it's not deep this morning. There's a bow. Now, if the bow faces towards Lucas... Lucas, just wave your hand. People don't know. Okay, that's Lucas. So I want to shoot Lucas with my bow. Okay? The bow is facing which way? Towards him. Okay? Now, stick with me. God says, I make a promise. I'm never again going to attack the world with water. I'm not going to wipe it out again. That's a promise. And as a sign, I'm giving you a bow when it rains. Which way does the bow face? So never again will the bow attack us. And that is the promise of God. And the bow is not the promise. The bow is the reminder of the promise that God is not angry at the world anymore and He has turned the bow upside down and He will never again wipe down here out with water The bow is facing upwards. There's a covenant if you needed one. Okay, That's not the Old Covenant. That's not the Old Testament. When we speak about the Old Testament, we need to know what we're speaking about. It's it's, it's speaking about the Mosaic Covenant. That's another way to say it. The Mosaic Covenant. And it's not because it was nice tiles and someone made mosaic. No, it's because of Moses that we get to mosaic. Okay, Um, Just a little joke there for us this morning. But it says then... Their minds were blinded. Why? Because they stuck in the Old Testament. So what I did for years is I went to the New Testament. Amen? Because I'm not stupid. <laughs> I read this and I'm not going to be stupid. Call me stupid later, but I don't want a veil. I want to be married to Jesus. I don't want to see Him through, through a gaze. I want to see the real thing. I want to see all of it. So let's run to the New Testament. And I ran to the New Testament and I got stuck there and my life was awesome. Amen? But now what I'm doing is God is showing me hey, you're not a steward of the mysteries the way you think you are, because the mystery is revealed in the old, and it, or it is hidden in the old, and it is revealed in the new. And if I want to be a leader in church, 1 Corinthians, what is it, uh, 4 verse 1 says, I need to be a great steward of the mystery. What it actually says, I need to understand Genesis to Malachi. Okay. Okay. Are you guys ready with my hypothesis? So it says, When we're stuck in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, when that is all we read, when we then come to the books of Moses, it says, yes, and it is in there, but the books of Moses is Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus. All of it is not law. Have you read it? All of it is not law. Genesis is pretty awesome. Amen. speaks to Abraham. Genesis 11 to Genesis 24, I think. It's just Abraham. There's no law. Galatians 3 says only 400 years later that the law come. The law in that sense is Old Testament. So for 400 years before Abraham and everything up to from Adam, there wasn't the Old Testament. Now Peter, why are you going on about this so much? Because it makes a big difference, okay? So when we now go with that mindset and we go read Moses, we read through a veil. But when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed And now we go back to the books of Moses, excited. Now we're going to go and unveil the mystery. We're going to translate. We're going to discover. We're going to demystify who God is. Which means now we are good stewards of those mysteries. Even unto this day. And I thought when you read Moses, the veil is on your heart. Okay, verse 15. But it says, if you're stuck in the Old Testament... Now when you come to Moses, you don't see what it's about. Now if the veil is removed, let's go to Moses, amen? Now we're going to see some things. And why do we do this? Luke 24, Jesus just got up from the grave, and there's two guys, or a guy and a girl, we're not sure. One of them is named Cleopas, and they're on their way to Emmaus. And they say, haven't you heard? And they're speaking to the very person who just got out of the grave. So, no, he didn't hear, he... Experienced. <laughs> and he experienced that he was the one who died. He felt it. And he got up that morning on the third day and they say, listen, this prophet, he was, he, he, he was killed. He was handed over to, to the, the religious leaders and they killed him. They handed them over to the Romans because why? the Israelites couldn't kill people. So they murdered him by selling him out to, to the Romans because the Romans had the crucifixion in their law. And, uh, and it's now three days on And now some women of our company said they went to the grave this morning and He's not there. Why are they missing it? Can you see that they're missing it? Like, there was a promise about three days. There was a promise, there was prophecy upon prophecy that the Messiah would suffer and die and raise again. Why did they miss it? Because they were stuck in the Old Testament. They were veiled. Now what does Jesus do? He goes through the Scriptures. He goes from Genesis to Malachi and He explains, He expounds, He unfolds the things concerning the books of Moses. Yes, but what does He do? He doesn't go through the law of Moses. He expounds to them the things concerning Himself. So they're stuck in the Old Testament. Jesus takes them through the Scriptures. They turn to Christ and guess what? The veil is removed, and they can see him for who he is. And they use these words that in our hearts burn within us, when he explained to us, when he opened up to us as the word there, the scriptures. Now I'll, I exist so that the hearts of men will burn with the revelation of Christ. That's my life, purpose and mission. And I just got a whole new tool set to aid me in that. Because when we use the words, our hearts burn, don't our hearts burn, it's what the word refers to as the circumcision of the heart, which is getting saved, cutting off the old mindset. The minds were blinded, that blindness is cut off, and now we see as in a glass. And not only do we see, the word goes on there in 2 Corinthians 3, it says now we become what we see. We become more like Christ. We forget about what we should do and shouldn't do. We guess, we find Christ and we, the veil is removed. We get one with Him and we live now more like Him accidentally. But it's not so accidental. It's on purpose. Because I'm not going for the do, I'm going for the done. I'm trying to more and more see that this God of ours never changes. Who knows there's a verse in the Bible that says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Okay, so the God of the old cannot be different from the God of the new. Because otherwise, that verse, we need to take it out of the Bible. And if we start taking verses out of the Bible, what are we left with? So there's a few promises. When we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The unveiling happens. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's liberty. But we all, with open face, we all with an unveiled face. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go into Moses with an unveiled face. And we're going to see it as it is. Not as it is supposed, supposedly is. Okay? Not as we've been probably taught before. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, open face, beholding in a glass, changed into that same image. The image is what you see. So you need to see in order to become you need to see to become is it isaac that goes to or jacob that goes to laban laban and then he he, he works for him and there's the sheep and the donkeys and the the bocca, they go for it now they multiply they grow and then he says but give me my portion and laban says now what's your portion like you work for me he says, okay, give me the striped and the speckled. And then that's, in, that's the ones you don't want, he talked to the farmers. But what does he do? He puts stripes and speckles in front of the watering troughs. Because what they now see is what they produce. So when we see Christ, we will multiply, we will produce Christ. So it's all about beholding. And that's what the verse here says, beholding as in a glass. We behold what? The glory as of the Spirit of the Lord. Paul doesn't say that we shouldn't read Moses. He states that when you come to the books of Moses, you should come with a New Testament mindset, not looking to see what we must do, but rather seeing what God promised to do. I'm going to say that again. When we come to the books of Moses, we're not going to look and see what we should do. We're going to go look and find what Christ God promised that he would do through Christ. Amen? So, those last few weeks, we've been like splitting the sermon in two, where it's a practical, I give you tools because I need to equip. My job is not just to teach and inspire, it's to equip. Ephesians 4 says it clearly. So now I'm equipping you, hopefully, maybe some of you, those who want to, I'm equipping you to do what? To go confidently into the first five books of the Bible. Not fearfully. Confidently. Because what are we going to go and find when we go there? We're going to go look for Christ. Amen? That's the mystery that's been revealed. Colossians 1 speaks about it, if you want to find that out. So what is the first book of Moses? Genesis. Okay. So when we want to start, let's start at the Genesis. I wanted to call this series uh, Finding Jesus in Genesis. But I realize it's more than that. But we're probably going to have a few... Uh, finding Jesus in Genesis sessions. So Genesis 3, something happens. There's a tree, there's a few trees, there's two specific trees. The one is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God doesn't say much about the tree of life to Adam, but He says, of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat, because if you eat of it, you will die. Okay. Someone comes, they call him the serpent, the serpent beguiles or deceives Eve, and um, we've got scripture to prove it, that it was the, the, the woman but we won't go there this morning. And um, she then beguiles her husband, okay? And little did you know that they're not going to run around naked for the rest of their lives. Otherwise, I promise you, he would not have eaten. But let's move on from there. Okay, so they eat, and God shows up, and what's happened? They're in hiding. And God says, where are you? And they say, we hide because we are naked. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you shouldn't Eat. Have you eaten of that tree? And the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled or deceived me and I did eat. Okay, so that's the context. Adam and Eve ran around the garden. They ate some of these uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent deceived them, beguiled them, tricked them, cheated them. That's one of the words that we can put in there and they did eat. So what did He cheat them of? Freedom. He sold to them the idea that they are not as much like God as God said they are. We think serpent, and we go weird. We go Halloween weird. But He's subtle. Sometimes futile. He's, he's cunning and crafty, says the word. You go out, th- out to, to our resource table, there's a series called Complete. And if you struggle with that, then you, I'm going to say is, you're letting the snake cheat you into believing that you're not as perfect as God says you are. That's what the snake does since the beginning. Nothing new. You know there's a word that says there's nothing new under the sun? I think it's Ecclesiastes. So since the sun was created, there's nothing new. So the old devil, Revelation says, the snake, the devil, the Satan of old, he's still doing the same thing. He's beguiling, he's cheating us. He's trying to. But now the Lord said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shall you go, and thus shall you eat all the days of your life. Now, verse 15 is amazing. God is making a promise. Okay. God is making a promise, and He's making a promise to whom? Who's the audience? There's there's three things there. Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Okay. God is making a promise. Where are we, Guys. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. But don't go to Moses because then we're going to get into trouble. No, I'm going to show you now. We're coming to Genesis to Moses and we're going to see amazing things. So verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's the gospel in Genesis 3.15. God is making a promise about Jesus. He's speaking about the woman's seed, which speaks about the virgin birth. Ladies, you don't have seed. The woman provides the egg. The man provides the seed. That's why Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? Mary is the mother of Jesus. That's nothing... That, that's just... That's true. <laughs> because it is her seed. Now, the New King James does us the pleasure of putting it in the capital... So it makes it more obvious. So he says, God makes a promise here. What is the promise? Remember, Adam and Eve is like they. You know, because they like just they're gonna die now, and they don't want to die naked. Amen. <laughs> God says, Hey, where are you guys? They've just sinned like horribly, and God still shows up for his afternoon walk with them. So is sin about what we do and don't do? You can listen to two weeks ago. I'm not going to go there this morning. God is making a promise. This is even before the rainbow. God is making a promise. He's making a promise to Eve. He's making a promise to Eve. He's sharing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with Eve, the first sinner. And he's saying that there will be enmity, enmity between you and the woman, the snake. Between your seed and her seed. He says there to the snake, you will, um, he shall bruise your head. The word bruise there is crush, break, destroy. Isn't a blow called man? It is the, 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 uh, the passion picks this up, or Paul picks this up in... Um, Romans 16. Romans 16, and that's where we'll end. And he speaks in the Passion, he says, he will beat you to a pulp. That's bruised. It's crushed. It's like you crush grapes to make wine. You're not going back to a grape (laughs) after you've been wine, amen? So, to overwhelm, to break, to crush. This is the gospel preached in Genesis 3. Christ, the seed of the woman, promised to the woman Bad news for the snake, the greatest news ever for Eve. She just messed up and God says, this is the plan. That's good news for us too. Okay? So, verse 16, he says something interesting. He says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, and sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So he says, your seed is going to crush the serpent's head, but you're going to have pain and suffering in childbirth, and conception. That's the, that's the curse. Now let's go to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 says in verse 13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Okay? If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety, she shall be saved in childbearing. This is a this is a complicated scripture. This is a scripture with you go look for commentaries. You're going to find many different things. But can I simplify it for us this morning? And giving credit to uh, my friend Julius for this one. She is saved how? In childbearing. So we shouldn't come up with new ideas when we come to a verse like this. We should go and find in the scriptures what is the chain of thought here. And it comes all the way back from Genesis 3.15, where it says the woman will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Jesus. That's Luke 2. But the idea comes from the seed of the woman who will bruise, crush, destroy Satan. So how is woman saved? Same way man is saved, through Christ. Through the child that the woman has bared. You will be saved through bearing Jesus. Okay, the thing is often we make it so practical and we try to figure out the nuances of what is really said here, where the context of the Bible is Christ. So when we go to childbearing, we should look at first of all, where is, child bo- where is the child born? And who was he born to? So when we go to Genesis, we see the, the, woman, the, the son of the woman. And now we come to First Timothy and we say, hey, she saved through childbearing. The Amplified Classic actually goes on and it says it like this. It says, uh, And they will be saved eternally if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Saved indeed through the childbearing, capital C, or by the birth of the divine child. Now you can come with all your explanations and we can chat about it around that verse, but I'm going to go with this one. <laughs> because it points to Christ. And I know that's how we are saved, through the child that was born of the woman, the divine child. Saved through Christ, the one made of woman, born from a virgin. Galatians 4.4 4 goes on and it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And that word, born of a woman, just jumped out at me. And then I realized, but everyone is born of a woman, born under the law. But the word there in the, in the Hebrew actually can also be translated made of a woman. Which I think would be more accurate giving the context. So God sent forth His Son when the time had come. What did He do? He sent Jesus made of a woman. Genesis 3.15 is where I pick up on that idea that it's the seed of the woman. And then 1 Timothy later, He says this is the how we are saved by the child, the divine child that's born in the woman. So we're all born of women. But why would He then say that? Not to fill three letters on your page and make sure that the Bible is just thick enough so it looks holy. No, we must go deeper. We need to study. We need to find. So when we say made of a woman, isn't that referring to Jesus? The context clearly is the birth of Christ. When the fullness of time had come, when all the prophecies were prophesied, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, virgin birth, Born under the law. Why? To fulfill the law. He had to be born under the law. What is the law there? It is the Old Testament. The conditional covenant. Okay. So Jesus, makes a, God makes a promise about the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. Now we go to the promise repeated. Okay. God repeats this promise in Numbers 21. I need to speed up a little bit, but we'll get there. Numbers 21, something very interesting happens, and uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're in the desert, and they're complaining, and they're murmuring, and they're just human, aren't they? They're like us. <laughs> they like to complain, and they like, it's too hot, and it's too cold, and it's too thirsty, and it's too wet. And when is the summer coming? I mean, it's almost the middle after the middle of October, and it's 13 degrees yesterday. Did you see? And we want to bry and wear our pluckies, but now we need to sit here with our jerseys. I mean. that's just humanity for us. That's the flesh. So what were they? They were just in the flesh. And I promise you, if you were in a desert, we'll be in the flesh too. I mean, <laughs> you need to get out of that. Numbers 21, therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses, Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and that shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall what? Live. What must they do with a snake? Moses, make a snake, a fiery snake, put it on a pole, put it on the cross. And when we look at it, you live. L- remember that word, look at. I'm going to make a point about that. So Moses made a, a bronze serpent. Bronze in, in, in the word speaks about condemnation. Speaks about lust as well, by the way. So, Goliath had a bronze armor. Lust and condemnation. He was a picture of the world. Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What is this bronze serpent on a pole? It's a a serpent that cannot bite you anymore. It's a serpent that's no longer movable. It's a serpent that's been defeated It is a picture, it is a reminder of the promise made to Eve. That there will be a serpent. Yes, he is a serpent, but your seed will crush his head, will overwhelm him, will make him ineffective. Now there's something that happens. I mean, think about it. God could do anything in that moment. He can just heal them. But He uses this opportunity to repeat a promise. And He does it in the form of what the word calls uh, allegory. Where do I get that big word? In Genesis uh, Galatians 3. Paul speaks about Galatians 3 at the end there. That Sarah and Hagar is an allegory. It's a picture. It's a type. It's a shadow. It's a symbol of something much more than Adam just sleeping with his servant. Oh, not Adam. Abraham. You guys with me? Okay, we're going to go somewhere. So... More than just instantaneous healing in the wilderness, the Israelites get a repeat, a reminder of the promise that God made to Eve, the gospel. Now, why can I say this? Peter, you, you, you're going for it a bit too far this morning. you like, what was in your water? I'm not going into other books currently. I'm just going into the Word. So let's go to John 3. If you're making notes, you'll realize that we've been all through the Bible already. Genesis, Numbers, John. We started off in Galatians, Corinthians. We're going to go to Romans. And we're just talking about the snake. The Gospel to Eve. So John 3, in verse 14, says, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake, if you're reading your Bible, those letters are in red. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. So he says, As Moses lifted up the snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be what? Lifted up. What is he talking about? The cross. So that everyone who believes in Him, not do anything, believes, will have eternal life. And incidentally, John 3.15 is just before John 3.16. There's another massive revelation for us this morning. So the context of John 3.16, actually Jesus is coming from the Old Testament. He's coming from Moses and He says, remember, the snakes bit you. And as Moses lifted up the snake, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him, in the Old Testament they had to look at whoever believes in Him. Now, Peter, you're saying Jesus is the snake. No, you didn't get there yet. No, I'm not saying Jesus is the snake. Jesus is the promised one. But my Bible says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, I believe it is, That he who knew no sin became what? Sin. So that we could become the righteousness of who? Of God. Wow. Okay. How? Through Him. Through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is the gospel. He who knew no sin, did no wrong, became sin. So already you know then sin is not about what you do. Because he didn't commit every sin in the world on the cross. Just to make it practical. But he says, whoever believes. So he says, there was a promise in Genesis. The promise was repeated in numbers. And now Jesus says, that is what that all meant. It is about the cross. You need to have a New Testament mindset to follow this train of thought, but... We're just reading scripture, aren't we? The snake is still trying to do what he did in the garden to Eve. Beguiling, deceiving, and cheating us of what we believe, not what we do. And the church globally has gotten so behip with what people do, and the devil is too happy about that because it's not about what you do, it's about what you believe. Because whoever looks at him and believes will not perish. You can look at him, not believe, do everything right, and you'll still perish. That's what that verse says. John 3, 16 qualifies that. How does he do this? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. If you take one verse home, take this one home. This is the summary of everything I'm saying this morning. It says, there's a, there's a snake and he wants to deceive, cheat, beguile is the old English word there, by craftiness, so that what? We do everything wrong that there is, that the world thinks is wrong. No, it speaks about the corruptness of the mind. And anything then, what is the corruptness of the mind, Peter? It is anything that is not focused on the simplicity of Christ." So it's anything that you should do instead of what Christ has done. Let that sink in for a moment. If we are focused on the simplicity of Christ, you might think that we're going deep these last few weeks. It feels like a real study of the Word. It's actually simplifying it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of all the gemosh and all the verdedelijkings and everything. I'm just trying to show you the Bible is about Jesus. Amen. From Eve, all the way through. Abel. Why was Abel's offer accepted? You believe the gospel, but we'll get there. Cain didn't. I fear. This is not all. This is real fear. (laughs) This is torment. Amen. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds. So who's the real enemy? Easy to blame the devil. The scripture says it's our own minds. This 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 made me very uncomfortable, by the way. (laughs) It's our own minds. The word says that God doesn't tempt anyone, but anyone who is tempted, basically, should realize that he's tempted of his own lusts and desires. So it's not the devil that tempted you. You got there by your lusts and desires. So your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ so when we go to Moses we shouldn't go and complicate the first five books of the Bible that's what the Jews are doing very well and they're all confused we should go and find the simplicity of Christ in the old in Genesis to Malachi there's a lady and she's probably going to listen to this she was in our church in Durbanville in 2012 that would be 2013 and uh, they must be. They retired, and they've retired three times. So, just to put it into context, they retired, and they got called back into to ministry, and retired again, and called back into ministry. And as she was, she picked up on um, uh, the, the the first part of the series online, and she listened to it on SoundCloud, and she sent me a message, and she said, "Peter, I'll never look at the Old Testament the same ever again." I don't want to guess her age, but she's retired three times. Okay. <laughs> she is confronted now with truths about the Old Testament that is causing her to to contact me and say, this is what the Jews need to hear. Because it's easy to say, I don't believe in Paul. Neither do we. But Paul, what he did is he showed us Christ in the Scriptures. That is what he was, and that's why his calling was to fulfill the Word to reveal it, to translate it, to uncover the mystery. So now we can go to Muslims, because they'll read the Torah with you, and we can take them to the snake. And we can take them to um, the snakes in the wilderness. We can take them to Eve. We can take them to Abraham. And we can share the gospel with them. And they will listen, because those are books, ancient writings that they're here. But what have we done for 2,000 years, but maybe more? We're trying to complicate things. Do this, don't do that. Religiosity, religion. Do this, don't do that. Pray here, do that. Touch this, don't touch that. Eat this, don't eat that. Say sorry so many times. Get up before the sun. Don't fight. Like, what's that one? Um, Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Brother, marriage prep, we're going to preach that. If you're fighting at 12 at night, the sun's already down, buddy. You'd rather go sleep and try again tomorrow, amen? (laughs) Amen. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So what is it? There's a promise. There's a covenant made in Genesis 3. The promise is repeated in a symbol, allegory, like a story. It's like a parable. Psalm uh, Psalm 78 speaks about the the dark sayings of old. What he's saying is linking that to 2 Corinthians 3, where we started, it's not what it seems to be. There's more to it. Every time Jesus told a parable, what does the, the disciples do? They go to Him often and say, Hey, Jesus, what did that mean? Because they don't know what it meant, but they knew it meant more than, it, than He said. Okay, they picked up on that much. On the road to Emmaus, that's what Jesus did. He explained the parable of the Old Testament. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It's an allegory. It's a symbol. Okay? So He said, yes, Abraham had two wives. Yes, he did. And one was Hagar, and one was Sarah. And, but this is what it means. In the eternal context. This is the promise repeated to Israel. Now, there's a danger here and a lot of people, a lot of, let's say a lot of us, maybe myself, definitely myself included, we've fallen over this trap. And there's something in the Bible that, you know when you read the Bible and you just pick up on something and it just, you've never seen it and it's uncomfortable so you sort of note it and you move on. Only me again, that's nice to be the pastor, you get to repent and confess and do everything up front. So let's go quickly to this 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. So where are we in the Bible? We need to ask ourselves these questions. We came from Genesis, we went to Numbers, now we're in Kings. So this is not written by Moses, but this is still referred to as Scripture. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah. So Hosea is who? A prophet, and you can go read his book. And his book is all about idolatry, basically. Okay? So there's is context for what is happening here. Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Basically saying, Hosea is the prophet, and Hezekiah is the king. Okay, that's what we get from this verse. Next verse, please. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother, this name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. This is giving us context. We're just panning into the scene of the movie. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So they're giving us a character reference here. According to all that his father David had done, so that's his great-great-grandfather, because his fathers did many wrong things, okay? But that's what the Word speaks about in Romans 5, or Romans eleven five about a remnant. There's always someone who's believed the gospel. And guess who they are? Go read the accounts, the history of uh, our Lord's um, ancestry. That's the remnant. Rahab, the prostitute, is there. They believed. What did she believe? She believed the message, the promise. What did Ruth believe? She was a Moabite. They said Israelites don't have anything to do with the Moabites. She's the grandmother of our Lord Jesus. Not because of who she was, but because of what she believed. And they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to his father, has done. Verse 4. This is the kicker. He removed the high places, so that's where they worshipped idols. Broke the sacred pillars, that's also idol worship. Cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces what? The bronze serpent that Moses has made. We've seen this before. Have you ever seen this in the Word? Peter, but now you set yourself up for trouble because you just showed us the serpent is a picture of Jesus and now you You're crushing it. The serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nuashtan, which means the great snake. I'm, I'm, I'm landing now, okay? So what has happened is, God makes a promise in Genesis, and He says to Eve, Your seed, my son, your seed, will crush, will bruise, will Breaking pieces. The snake. Okay? That's going to happen one day. Now we get to Moses, the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus says, take the snake, make a snake, a bronze snake, and put it up. And it is a sign. It is not Jesus. It is a sign pointing to your Savior, the Christ. And what do the Israelites do? They start worshiping the sign. instead of the sun. Now go think about this in this week. This is your homework. Are there signs that we're worshipping pointing us to Jesus which is causing us not to worship Jesus? It's just something to think about. That's what I'm thinking about currently. Because when we get something that God meant for good, we get it wrong, then we need to crush it. Because we just came from the context that this king did everything right in the sight of God. So crushing the serpent was right in God's eyes. Okay? Because now all of a sudden the Israelites got it wrong and they started worshiping the snake as an idol. That's why I said, Moses said, look at it. Look at it because it's pointing you somewhere, it's a compass, it's not a god. And they take a compass pointing them to Christ and they make it a God and they start burning incense and giving it a name, the Great Snake. It's so subtle, so easy to lose focus sometimes. And that happens when we operate from the veil of the Old Testament. What should we do? Should we, burn, we should burn incense to someone. This is something that reminds us of God. Let's burn incense to this thing. And before we know it, we've, we've forgotten about God completely. And there I say it, we start a new church because they don't believe as we do. They don't worship like we do. They don't focus on the things that we do. Where the Bible clearly is only about one person, and that's about Jesus Christ. And there's a, if you ever needed an example that God is not into symbolism, He gives us pointers to help us to get to Christ, but we should never ever worship them. People focus on conditional performance-based covenant and not on the promise which is fulfilled in Christ. We're never called to worship types and shadows, never called to worship elements and images pointing us to Christ. These images, these types, these shadows were made merely to point to the fulfillment which is in Christ. And Jesus says in John 4, Clearly to the woman at the well, those that worship Him must worship Him well, in spirit and in truth. No symbolism, no pictures, no things, no elements. And I'm going to leave you with this because, and this is beautiful, Galatians 4 verse 9. Galatians 4 verse 9. The undercarriage is out, Seat belts are on, tray tables packed away, please. We're going to land this Boeing now. It says, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So Paul says, I've, I've showed you Christ. I've given you the fullness, the fulfillment, the covenant. I've unveiled the mystery. The word says that Christ has been formed in you in Galatians 3. He says, but how well you know, trying to turn back to what? Weak and beggarly elements. Church, listen to the words. Weak, without power, without... The, the word is impotence. Meaning it cannot reproduce. It is unfruitful. Beggarly saying, what is beggarly? Please, God, just move. Please, God, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And just, just move, just... Just heal that person. If it is your will, God, please just, just heal that person. God, I need breakthrough. God, move. God, show up in this place. Think about our song sometimes. Pour out your spirit. Isaiah said, "I'm going to pour it out." Joel two confirms it. Acts two, it happens, and now you're asking me to do something, which I've done two thousand years ago. Was returning to weak. And beggarly elements. The word elements is beautiful. Listen to this. If you go read it up, the Greek. It says, it is, it's the beginning of things. It's the shadows. Because it says, it is as if you're speaking words without writing the letters of those sounds. This, is, this, is, this just blew me yesterday. So he says, when we turn again to the weak and the beggarly, now whatever causes you to be weak, unfruitful, beggarly before God, that's what he's speaking about. But the word elements there is so beautiful. It It is the sounds before it is seen. It is the stories told before the manifestation of the letters on the page. It is what was spoken to be before it became. It is the sounds, the shadows. You cannot you, you cannot touch the shadows. You cannot touch the sounds, but you can see the letters. For Christ has manifested when the time was full, made of a woman, made under the law, manifested in front of eyes. Do not turn back to anything that was before the manifestation. Of Christ. Do not turn back again to the weak and beggarly enemies. And he's basically asking, Why do you want to be in bondage? You know why? Because we don't trust freedom. We want to control the outcome. But faith is an adventure where, according to Ephesians 3 and verse 20, we get exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or think. When I started on this journey of discovering Jesus in the books of Moses, I'm way further than I ever thought I'd get. Exceedingly, abundantly above. Much further than I could ever imagine. Finding the snake palpitated in, uh, in, in, in kings. That was a weak and beggarly element. That was a foreshadow. That was a picture of Christ to come. Don't worship pictures. Don't worship signs. Don't worship anything that wants to point you to God because you no longer need to be pointed to God because Christ came. And He now lives in you. So where do you want to point to? What do you want to do to make Him move? He's moved. What do you want to make Him do? To pour out your Holy Spirit. Just pour it out. Do not turn back to weakness. Do not be beggars when you are sons and daughters of the King of the Universe. Let's go to Moses and go confidently. I know my God. He is the same yesterday, today, today and forever. He never intended this thing, this Old Testament thing. They wanted it. And he pointed them all the way through to Christ. The Passover meal points to Christ. Feast of Tabernacles it points to Christ. Maybe we'll do the seven feasts because then you'll see clearly how all of that is just Jesus. You know what this does for me? It gives me so much confidence in the Word. Because it's no longer confusing who is God and is He happy or what side of the bed did He get up or who is He speaking to and... No, is it old or new? It doesn't matter. It's Christ. Do not turn again. Church, <laughs> as your pastor, I entreat you, I cry this morning. Do not turn to weak and beggarly elements. You say, Yes, of course I don't want to. Make sure. But we have the fullness, we have the perfection, we have the completeness, we have the Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent has beguiled Eve through his subtility or craftiness, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So when you go do your homework this afternoon, this week, what are you going to do? You're going to look for everything that's not Christ. Not even that which points to Christ. Christ. The snake pointed to Christ. But it wasn't Christ, so we don't worship it. We worship Christ. Not weak and beggarly elements. Now look at Paul brings the promise. Do you think the new covenant is new? It's not new. There's promises in Genesis 3. Romans 16 and verse 10. I said we we're going to end there. Sorry, 20. Romans 16 and verse 20. What is Romans? Romans is the great book about grace. Romans 16 is the last chapter of that book. And look what he says. And the God of peace will crush Satan. Will bruise Satan. Will break Satan. The promise made in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The gospel preached to Eve. Now it's no longer just the seed. But now we become one as the new creation with Him. And now we get to crush Satan's head. Not through my power, but through the one who lives and works within. You can go look it up. It it links directly to Genesis 3. You can look at the wording. That word crush there is the same. It's a Greek word for the Hebrew word in Genesis 3. That was the promise. We live in the fulfillment of that promise. No reason do you think jesus is afraid of the devil where are you in christ Christ? simplicity let's stand up and pray father we thank you this morning for jesus we thank you that the shadows is being removed this morning that we will live as if christ is in us to break to crush to bruise The works of the devil. James 4.17 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to connect with us, or if you'd like us to pray with you, please contact us at info at gracelife.co. If you'd like to order more resources or discover more about us, you can visit our website at www.gracelife.co or find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube.